You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we haven't met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to take an opportunity to welcome you and say thanks for uh, being here today. Uh, what we do here normally is we just teach through uh, books of the Bible, and uh, we're teaching through a little book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk now, and we're almost done. Uh, we're going to cover most of chapter 3 today, and then Rob will wrap it up next week, covering the very end of the book of Habakkuk. And the whole book's been, we've sort of picked up the theme from the text that it's about uh, how do you live when life doesn't make sense? And even though Habakkuk lived uh, you know, 600 years before Jesus, uh, so even though he lived that many years ago, and he's talking about very foreign places and a very foreign wor- world with uh, nations we don't know anything about and words we can't pronounce, and though much of it feels a bit distant, um, it's easy to see in it the reality that connects with us today, uh, in our lives today in the book of Habakkuk. I want to share with you a little bit about a book um, I read about this week. It's a child's book, a children's book. Maybe you've read it. It's called, Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is? Is a Blue Whale the Biggest Thing There Is by Robert Wells. And in the book, what he does is he, he starts with something that's big but relatable, and then he expands it out to show us what real bigness is and how unrelatable true uh, bigness really is. And it's, uh, I don't have all the drawings, it's got cool drawings in it and stuff, but this is, this is uh, a kind of a summary of the book. The largest animal on the earth is the blue whale. Just the flippers on its tail are bigger than most animals on the earth. But a blue whale isn't anywhere near as big as a mountain. If you put 100 blue whales in a huge jar, and he draws that for you, 100 blue whales in a huge jar, you could put millions of whale jars inside a hollowed out Mount Everest. Isn't that amazing? But Mount Everest isn't anywhere near as big as the earth. If you stacked 100 Mount Everests on top of each other, it would be just a whisker on the face of the earth. And the earth isn't anywhere near as big as the sun. You could fit one million earths inside the sun. But the sun, which is a medium-sized star, isn't anywhere near as big as a red supergiant star called Antares. Fifty million of our suns could fit inside Antares, this one star. But Antares isn't anywhere as nearly as big as the Milky Way galaxy. Billions of stars, including supergiants like Antares, as well as countless comets and asteroids make up the Milky Way galaxy. But the Milky Way galaxy isn't anywhere near as big as the universe. There are billions of other galaxies in the universe, and yet filled with billions of galaxies, the universe is almost totally empty. The distances from one galaxy to another are beyond our imagination. And so he starts with something that's kind of graspable, a blue whale, and he expands it out to something that's entirely impossible to grasp, the expansive size of the universe. And in some way, that's the experience Habakkuk has in this book. 
he, he's looking at something that's confusing and a problem that needs to be solved, but what he finds out is that God is bigger than the problem he brings. God's grandeur, God's rule is greater, God's power is more immense than what he ever imagined. Habakkuk, this, this uh, prophet in around 600 BC, he is, begins his book sort of raising a complaint with God. He doesn't know why God isn't showing up. He doesn't know why God's not helping out when their people are, uh, well, they're living really, um, they're at a moral low point. They're really harming one another and this sort of stuff. And he wants God to intervene. And God says, well, I am active. I am intervening in a way that you don't see. And if I told you, you wouldn't understand. And what he says to him is, I'm over here with this sort of bad, bad nation. These, these people, the Chaldeans, which is another name for Babylon. They are very sort of evil, aggressive, power monger. Uh, type folks. And I'm over here and I'm raising them up. I'm helping them get stronger. Uh, and then Habakkuk says, that's him. how could God, that blows his concept of God. God, how could you be doing that? And he says, well, I'm going to use them to attack you, to destroy the city of his own city, God's own temple, to take you into exile so that you would be purified by that process and come to me. The people are far from God. This is how he's going to bring them close to himself. And Habakkuk can't believe that. How could you use really bad people to, uh, to judge and harm us like relatively bad people? And God says, well, ultimately, in chapter 2, he reveals to him that I'm going to judge the Chaldeans. They're going to be guilty for what they do, and they're going to pay the price for what they do. Justice will be meted out in the end. And so at this point, he just gets this bigger and bigger picture of God, and at the end of chapter 2, it ends with a word from God for everyone to be silent before his great judgment. Now, what I'd like to do then is I'm going to read that verse, the last verse of chapter 2, and then I'm going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 3. This is page 458 in the Bibles that are under you. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat under you. You can turn to page 458, and we're going to read these first few verses. If you have questions about it as we go, you can text them in to the number there, and then we do a conversational podcast, uh, and we will seek to answer your questions. That comes out on Wednesday. You can, uh, we'll do our best to explain the text text further if you have questions about it. But this is what uh, we're going to read verses 20 through chapter 3 verse 2. And then I'm just going to give an overview of what happens between chapters 3 uh, verses 3 through 15. So this is God's word to us Habakkuk 2:20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Something has happened to Habakkuk. Something has happened. This prayer is very different than the prayer he opens the book with. If you go back to chapter 1, he opens with a prayer. Chapter 1, verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so that the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. That's where he starts. Lord, where are you? What's going on? Why aren't you doing something? It's a lament, a complaint 
to God. Now, in chapter 3, he says, I have heard the report of you and of your work. The NIV uh, translates chapter 3, verse 2, what we just read. It translates chapter 3, verse 2 this way. Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds. Do you see the change? God, where are you? What are you doing to God, I see your work, and I stand in awe of you. Something happened between chapter 1 and chapter 3. The circumstances have not changed at all. The people of Israel are still harming one another. The Chaldeans are still coming to attack Israel, and, uh, to attack Judah, and to take them captive, take them into exile. So the circumstances haven't changed at all, and yet Habakkuk opens this chapter praying with a profound humility. Very different than chapter 1. The questioning of God is gone at this point. The complaints about Israel are gone at this point. He he, he is not uh, pleading against the Chaldeans. That's over. Instead, he is worshiping God in awe. I stand in awe of your works Oh, Lord. Now, the opening complaint where he's saying, where are you? We, we studied that a number of weeks ago and said, that's not bad. He wasn't doing anything wrong. Uh, God wasn't offended or correcting him. The Bible is filled in numbers of places with honest crying out to God when life is difficult. And so it's not that he did anything wrong in chapter 1 by saying, where are you, God? But something is very different now that he's saying, I've heard of your work. I'm standing in awe of you. Revive your work. Something is very different. Nothing has changed in his circumstances, but everything has changed in his perspective of God. That's what's changed. What has changed is God has spoken to him. On multiple occasions between the first chapter and here, God has spoken a word to him. And it is the word of God that has led to this encounter with God that has made his vision of God much greater that has affected his heart so that he's now standing in awe of this God that he is questioning and raising complaints to. Two chapters earlier. He sees God as bigger. He sees God's purposes as grander and uh, more glorious. I've heard the report of you. And so what he does now is he writes a song. Chapter 3 is actually a song. It is a psalm. This closing chapter is one long psalm. It's very much changed. A psalm is a poem uh, that, is, that is sung by God's people corporately, or it could be sung individually, it could be read, it doesn't have to be sung, but a psalm is a, is a poem that is sung, and that's what this is. This is a psalm that he writes here. And we know that for three reasons. There are three things about chapter 3 that differentiates it from chapters 1 and 2 and shows us that it's a psalm. The first is this mysterious but oh-so-delicious word in verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. Isn't that a wonderful word? No one really knows what it means, but it is a great word. I love it. It sounds like a dish to me, something you would order. I'll have the Shigianoth, please. Uh, it just, I love it. It's, it's something, I don't know. But what, what it only appears here and in the Psalms. The word only appears here and in the Psalms. And so most uh, Old Testament scholars assume that it's a musical term. 
that it has something to do with music because it is tied uh, to the book of Psalms. So that's one clue that this is a psalm. The second clue is this word selah or selah that's used a number of times in this chapter. So in verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, selah. Uh, Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, selah. And then finally in verse 13, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck, selah. Selah is a word, or selah is a word that appears throughout the Psalms. And it appears at various parts in an individual Psalm, just like this, and it's, it's it's for a pause, Uh, Some think it was used for a musical interlude, so maybe a time of pausing, a time of reflection, a time of thinking about what we're singing, a time for a musical interlude. But it's the language that's used in a song, in a worship song for corporate worship. And then really the clincher is how the whole book ends, this last chapter, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, that's verse 1, and then this is how the chapter ends, really demonstrating that it is a psalm. The last verse, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So it's written to be sung to the the choir masters to lead the singing of this, and it's to be accompanied by somebody get a guitar, we're singing this song. So these are the proofs for us that demonstrates us that what we're reading here demonstrates to us, what we're reading here is something that would be used in corporate worship. So he starts out with, where are you God, life is really bad, and he ends with a song. Now, I guess the first could have been a song, too. Where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? That's a song. That's in a honky-tonk, dark, depressing country music, a few beers in. That's someone just sort of sad and depressed. So it kind of starts with a song, too. This is a more triumphant. It was in the gym the other day. It was so appropriate. Uh, somebody's playing some music, and all of us, they're playing music, and all of a sudden, Eye of the Tiger came on, which I haven't heard in forever. And so I got my Rocky and boxed the person next to me, and it was great. But Eye of the Tiger, so this is, this is glory. This is big music. This is something celebratory, you know, is happening here at the end. The Eye of the Tiger music, which is God is on the move. God is powerful. God's the victor. That's what this last chapter is about. While God doesn't, now now something has happened to him, and God doesn't speak to us in the same way he does Habakkuk. When we raise a question with God, God doesn't speak authoritatively, inerrantly to us, Uh, in a way that's to be recorded as authoritative scripture, like he does to Habakkuk. So he's saying something there. He's giving Habakkuk a very clear word. Here's what I'm going to do with the Chaldeans, and it's an authoritative word that's in your Bible. There's no authoritative words like that being spoken now. God doesn't speak to us that way. God has given us something much greater than what Habakkuk has at this time. Habakkuk gets a word of what God is going to do, but we have a fuller word than Habakkuk does. Habakkuk knows that the Chaldeans were coming and that God was going to use them to judge Judah 
Um, and that one day, he knows one day God would restore his people uh, from there. But we know, after they were in uh, exile, but we know how the story turns out because we've got the rest of the story. For Habakkuk, it ends right here. For us, it keeps going, and we know what happens. We know that, indeed, the Chaldeans do, uh, the Babylonians do capture Jerusalem and take uh, the, the best and the brightest of Jerusalem, the leaders. Uh, they take them all in exile. We know that happens. We also know that just as God says the Chaldeans are put down, that about 50 years after they come in and capture um, Judah in 587 BC, about 50 years later, they are taken down by a guy named Cyrus, uh, and they are, they are put down, so we know that. We also know that God brings his people out of exile back and that they rebuild the temple and that they rebuild the walls around Jerusalem that God uh, used the Chaldeans to tear down. We know that. We read that in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. So we get that. We also know that after the city is restored and the, and, um, and the walls are rebuilt, we also know that as well, another 400 years later, God himself visits Jerusalem, not through a, a, a prophet. Um, or some leader, but visits himself. The God-man, Jesus Christ, comes to Jerusalem. In the very area where Habakkuk is complaining and saying, God, please intervene, your, your people are harming each other, God himself will come to that very area in the person of Jesus, live a perfect life, announce that the kingdom of God is coming, uh, has come in him. He will die on a cross outside the city, He will die for our sins, the scripture says. He will be buried and raised on the third day and defeat the power of death and sin. We know all that from the Bible. Habakkuk doesn't know any of that. He may, as a prophet, have some inkling that God's going to send a king from the line of David, but he has no idea. He has a shadowy kind of vision of the future, but he has no idea what we know that actually happened later. Jesus uh, dies and is resurrected to save a people for himself. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit upon his church in power. God's very presence invades the lives of believers. And Jesus said before he died that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. So Jesus is building a people. He is extending the reign of his kingdom. And wherever it goes, good news comes to set captive people free from their sins, to heal sick people, to deliver demonized people, to give eternal life to people who have no hope, to come and to give people a purpose for their life, what they were created for, to restore them to their father, to adopt them into his family, and to use them in their everyday regular life as a light in the darkness. God is doing all of these things to spread the good news, not just in Israel, but in every nation, to every tribe, to every people, to every language. God is on the move reaching people through his church. We know all of that good news, and we're actually drawn up and caught into that story as his people here today. Habakkuk gets his world rocked and turned completely around with the mind-blowing, expanding vision that God is raising up the Chaldeans to judge his people so that they will turn to him and repent so that he can restore them. That's all he knows. But we know the Messiah will come, the word of God will come, and that we, the very word, Jesus, and that we will all be restored to him. We have a much fuller word than Habakkuk had. We have a much greater reason to sing. If he can go from where he is to singing a psalm, we can do that 
with, a, with infinitely greater songs because of what we know and what we've experienced in him. The power of God's word is astounding. It takes this confused prophet who is complaining to God and it turns him into a prophet of faith composing a psalm saying, I'm standing in awe of you, God. If the word of God has that transforming power for him, how much more to us who have the entire written word of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the community of faith, which is the temple of God, the people of God gathered before him, how much more do we have to be thankful for? It is the power, the transforming power of the word of God. The transforming power. That's our theme as a church this ministry year, transformed by the word. That it is the word that changes our lives. And this is what we all need. This is what we're starving for. We're looking in a thousand different places for satisfaction. But where we find satisfaction is when the word of God comes to us and opens our eyes. And and we encounter him through his word. This is what turns our complaining and questioning and, and crying out to a position of confidence in God. And saying, I'm in awe of you. Whether we know it or not, this is what we're starving for. This is why we gather on Sunday. The goal of gathering on Sunday is not merely to have a feeling or a little encounter or learn a little tidbit here or there. Here's a life hack to make my life a little smoother. The reason we gather before God is because we need a bigger vision of God. That's what Habakkuk needs. We need to, we come in here so often on Sundays and our problems are massive. The relationship challenge is like this mountain in front of us. The, the health challenge in front of us is like this vast, you know, uh, monster that's coming after us. We have these barriers, these challenges, these enemies, this opposition that seems overwhelming. And we've got this puny little God that we throw up a prayer to here and there when we're desperate. And when you come before the Word of God and you encounter God by His Spirit in the Word, that reverses. And the problem which looks so overwhelming becomes puny. And the God of the Bible, the Savior Jesus Christ, becomes grand in our eyes. He becomes bigger and bigger. He isn't any bigger, but our vision of him changes. It's like we have a telescope, you know, like a, um, a little telescope, the, the kind that you can just sort of, you know, look out, a little pirate deal going on here. It's like we take that and we flip it. We have the big end in our eye and it makes everything look very, very small out there. That's how we view God. We look at him through our life, through our experience uh, th- through our unbelief, and it just looks like God's very distant, very small, very detached, very unconcerned. And you flip that thing around when you come into the Word of God, and it's big, and what seems far off has come near, and what seems like a speck in the sky is grand. That's the experience of encountering God's Word, and that's what we need. We need a bigger God. I, I don't know the answer to all your problems today, but I know this, you need a bigger view of the Lord. You need, the, you need the power of the gospel to show you the love of God and the power of God and have confidence in what he is going to do in your life and in eternity. You need a confidence in the gospel that makes your life worth living and gives purpose to what you do every day. It all counts, but it all counts only when we have a vision of God. That's what changes for Habakkuk. We could go home now, but i got a few more things written down, so I'm going to say them. He not only does that, this is how he changes, but then he, he makes three requests, requests before God here. 
This is a prayer, after all, a prayer of Habakkuk. So this is what he prays for. Verse 2, in the midst of the years... Okay, I'm sorry, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Okay, I've heard of your work, Lord, and I stand in awe, NIV, or I fear the Lord. Not like God's going to harm me, that kind of fear, but just aware of the greatness of God, the majesty of God, so that I fear him. And it means I'm, I'm in awe. I'm astonished. I'm stunned by God. That's what it means. So he says, I've heard of your work, so in the midst of the years, revive it. The first thing he says, his first prayer is, God, revive your work. Number two, uh, in the midst of the years, uh, make it known, so reveal it. So revive your work, reveal your work, and in wrath, remember mercy. So the third idea here is remember your mercy. Revive your work, reveal your work, remember your mercy. Revive your work. I don't know, if I'm Habakkuk and I'm like on really good terms with God now and he's speaking stuff to me like this and we're writing a Bible together uh, and so I'm really tight with God, I'm probably saying maybe I can get a favor here. God, how about not sending the Chaldeans after all? Now that I kind of get it, why don't you not invade us? Why don't you not carry us? But he doesn't pray that way. He doesn't pray, Lord, he's not praying, stop the Babylonian invasion. He's rather saying, revive your work of rescue. And whatever it takes, if it takes our being invaded, if it takes the destruction of your temple, if it takes us living in a foreign land for decades, if it takes all of that for you to revive your rescue and your work of revival amongst us, then do whatever it takes. We want you to revive your work. He's not asking for the easy way, he's asking for God's way, which will bear the most fruit in the end. He sees God's purposes, he sees God's ways, and he's not in a tug of war of prayer. Oftentimes prayer is, we view it like a tug of war, like I'm going to keep asking, or I'm going to get a little more holy, or I'm going to ask the right way, or I'm going to quote the right verse, and I can sort of pull the rope and God comes over to my side. But that's not what he's doing, he's going to God's side and humbling himself and saying, revive your work. It's a lot easier to pray, don't send the Chaldeans, but he prays for God to rescue in his way. It's the same prayer that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. He prays this prayer in the midst of the years. Do you see that? It's repeated. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. Habakkuk lives in the midst of the years. What does that mean? Well, Habakkuk's time is a bad time. It's not a time of revival. It's not a time of God moving and power all around. It's a time of where are you, God? And in the midst of the years, he asked God to intervene. Um, Old Testament scholar Peter uh, Craigie, no relation to me. That's actually his name, Peter Craigie. Uh, He writes um, about the midst of the years. He says, Habakkuk and his people lived in the midst of the years in the drab flatness of time that seems never to be punctuated by the splendid acts of God. The midst of the years seems always to be a time characterized by the divine absence. But in the prophet's experience, the years of barren hopelessness were transformed by the vision of God's salvation. That was Habakkuk's gift to his own and to subsequent generations. He says, you may feel like you live in the midst of the years. He says, it's the drab flatness of time 
It's a time when I don't feel like much is happening in me spiritually or in my family or in my church or in my city. I I don't feel like much is happening spiritually. Habakkuk had known renewal and revival in King Josiah's time before. So he knew what it was like to see God on the move. And now he's in this time where it's, it's the drab flatness of life. It's punctuated, he says, not by the splendid acts of God. I mean, wouldn't we all love some of those splendid acts of God coming into our lives? And he says, no, it's not that. This is the time where it feels like God's pronounced absence. And in that time, he's saying, God, would you do whatever it takes to revive your work? And some of you today feel like that is where you are living. You're in the drab flatness of life. You said, man, that, that's a very articulate way to describe me. What is my life? Hashtag drab flatness of life time. You know, that's me. I'm in drab flatness. And he's praying for God to come. And what he does, when he thinks of God reviving his work, he reviews what God has done. So he reminds himself of what God has already done. He's facing the fear and the challenges of a difficult future, and he finds comfort in remembering what God's done and asking him to revive it again. So verses 3 through 15, I'm not going to read all these. It's It's a pretty challenging section of Scripture to understand for all of us. Um, but, the, but I just want to pull out a few of the highlights because what chapters, verses 3 through 15 do is they review what God has done in the past and in particular what he did in the Exodus. So in uh, verse 3, for instance, God came from Teman, which means south, uh, and the Holy One from Mount uh, Paran. These are areas uh, that were uh, in Sinai where God came to rescue, came from there to rescue his people. It's pointing out, God, you have come to us before to rescue. Do it again. Look at verse 5. Before God, before him, went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. This is a reference to the Exodus where, God, remember the salvation you brought to your people before you brought plagues to Egypt. Pharaoh resisted you. He resisted you multiple times, and you brought plagues until he woke up. So it's remembering, look how God uh, rescued us before. Um, in verses 8 through 11, it has all these cosmic imageries of like God, the warrior, coming to rescue his people. Uh, in verses 12 through 15, there's more of some of the history of what God did, especially in the Exodus. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. So he's talking about here, God, why did you come and rescue us in Egypt? Why have you rescued us before? What is all your rescue about? It's about bringing salvation to your people. Habakkuk worships God by recounting God's past works and by trusting that he will work for his people in the same way again. And how does God work for his people? He works for our salvation. He works to rescue us. He works to do what we cannot do for ourselves. And here's the reality. Just as Habakkuk goes back and says, this is what you've done in the past, God, we also have our story of rescue. We have our own story. God has rescued us as well. When you read accounts in the Old Testament of God rescuing his people, especially in the Exodus, 
They ultimately point forward to the great rescue that God works in Jesus Christ. The storyline of the Bible is God creating everything perfect, everything falling because we wrecked it, and then God rescuing a people for himself, does that in Christ, and ultimately returns for us. And it is every time we read along the story, these little rescues along the way, they all point to the grand rescue that is Jesus Christ rescuing us, rescuing a people for himself. So we weren't saved like they were. We weren't saved from a national enemy like the Chaldeans. We were saved from a very real spiritual enemy. God didn't judge our sins by sending the Chaldeans to punish us so that we would turn to him and ultimately be free. God, uh, God uh, sent his own son, Jesus, and punished Jesus for us so that we are set free and we receive forgiveness in new life. In a very real way, we could look at his judgment and deliverance in the past, and we can look to the cross and see this is the place where God pours out judgment so that his people would be delivered. In Habakkuk's day, it's the Chaldeans coming and attacking God's people so that he will ultimately deliver them. In our day, it's Jesus, it is God himself coming, taking his own judgment upon himself so that we go free without invasion, without exile, without all the stuff that happens right here, completely free. We're captive just as they are. We're running our own way, not looking to God just as they are. We're in need of rescue and a savior just as they are. But God comes and pours out, takes his own judgment so that we can be free. And it's, it's helpful at times when we live in the midst of the years to review what God has done for his people. Go back and read like these accounts of the Old Testament where God has rescued us, but ultimately to look in the person of Jesus and see his rescue. I love this time of year because we're coming up on a weekend where we, we celebrate what Christ has done every week. But in a pronounced way, in a marked way, we set aside you know, a week and a weekend in particular to, called Holy Week. We celebrate kind of the whole week, but we ultimately take Friday to Sunday and recognize what Christ did for us. And it's helpful to review that, what the cost. Many people tell me that Good Friday is their favorite service of the year uh, in our church. Um, the most joyful, joyful service is typically Easter, but they like Friday better because they're not very happy people. No, that's not the reason. But there's something so profound just about coming and realizing what God suffered for us that it's on clear display in such a way that you just, you just it's, it's breathtaking. And when we review what he has done for us, it expands our vision of God. It gives us grace to move forward confident in his future faithfulness. God, you've done that for us. You will take care of everything else. Renew your work. You've rescued us in Christ. Now we've got some other smaller rescues that we need now. Invade and help us renew our hearts, work again in our lives. Number two, and these last two are very brief, reveal your work. Look at that. It says, in the midst of the years, make it known. Habakkuk asked God to make his work known. In the midst of the struggle and difficulty, he wants God to make himself known to others just as he's done to Habakkuk. Habakkuk starts out, he's a prophet, he knows God, he's a holy man, 
okay? He starts out having no clue what God's doing. God, I don't see what you're doing. Where are you? And God has spoken to him and opened his eyes. And if anybody gets it, Habakkuk gets it, that without the Holy Spirit of God opening our understanding, we never know what God is doing. We need, we're dependent upon God to open our eyes. Uh, otherwise, we don't, we don't recognize his hand at work. The reality is God is working a million ways in your life, all around you. He's bringing relationships into your life. He's putting you in a particular place to live and to work and to recreate. Uh, he's bringing new friends into your life. He's placed you in a church with a calling and a purpose. God is working a thousand, a million, and, and it's, it's impossible to quantify, all around you. He's doing things in our lives, but we don't see what he's doing. We don't recognize what he's doing, and we often don't appreciate his involvement. We don't, we don't, because we just don't see it. We don't stop and look. We don't stop and thank him for what he's done for us. We don't run through the history of what Christ has done for us. We don't take inventory of our own lives and remember, oh yeah, I've been in a bind like this before, and you intervened and you worked in my life. Oh, we remember what he's done for us, how he's blessed us, how he's taught us, how he's spoken to us, how he's protected us. It's helpful to remember those things in the past, and we see that's a revealing of his work. We see what he's doing in us today. I love this prayer. In the midst of the years, make your work known. I mean, that's a prayer for all of us to speak to speak to the Lord. Even as we have a Good Friday and Easter coming up, may we pray this prayer. This isn't the prayer team. This is all of us. May we all pray, Lord, as we gather that weekend, would you make yourself known? At Good Friday, at Easter, would you reveal who you are so that people's eyes are opened and this little religious God that they thought they knew something about, their minds are blown and they see you as you really are and they come to faith in you. Make your way known. There's some of us, we have people that we love. They may be in our family. They may be our neighbor. They may be a friend that we've known a very long time. They may be our parents. Uh, they may be our coworkers. That, that we look at their lives, we look at them, and we say, they don't get it. They don't, they don't see God. They don't respond to God. They don't know God. And this is the prayer we should be praying. Lord, revive your work in our day and make it known to fill in the blank. Whoever that person is. Lord, I need you to open their eyes. Please, God, show mercy. Open their eyes. Give them an understanding of who you are. Sometimes especially with people we're close to, sometimes the best thing to do is not keep talking and talking and talking, seeking to convince them who God is, but rather to talk to God, asking him to open his or her eyes so they see what we see. You can't talk them into it. You could share the gospel. You could share the gospel, and through that, God speaks. But God has to open eyes God has to give life to dead hearts. God has to take a wandering Christian and bring them home. God has to take a Christian that's confused and doesn't even know where God is and is complaining against God and give them clarity. Only the Spirit of God does that through the Word of God. It's our job to pray this prayer. God, make your work known in the drab flatness of time, the midst of years. Last he, he prays, remember your mercy. Revive your work, reveal your work, remember your mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. 
And that, a, a, a crying out for mercy is a very basic prayer. We see it, uh, Jesus commends this prayer. In the, in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the New Testament, tax collector, bad guy in their day, is kind, of the, uh, kind of a notorious bad guy, dishonest person. He's commended, a tax collector is commended for praying this prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a powerful prayer. You pray that prayer today, God will answer that prayer. If, you're, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you pray the prayer, God, I turn from my sin, I turn to you, would you have mercy upon me? Would you rescue me, a sinner? God will answer that prayer. And that's what he's praying, God. As you bring judgment, so judgment's coming through the Chaldeans. As judgment comes, and then judgment's coming on them later. But as you pour out judgment, would you remember mercy? And that's exactly what he does. As As the Chaldeans bring judgment, he shows mercy on his people. As the Chaldeans are judged, he pours out wrath on them. He has mercy for his people. So this is the prayer, Lord. Would you please... Show mercy to us. Again, when I read this verse, it's a very, very short pathway to the cross and resurrection. In wrath, remember mercy. Is that not exactly what God does in the gospel? That we all deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. And in the cross, what God is doing is he's pouring out his wrath, his condemnation, his judgment for our sins. He's treating his son as our sins deserve. Jesus is dying for our sins. He's dying in our place. He's dying as our substitute. Jesus is suffering so that we go free. That's in your judgment, remember mercy. As your own son, in the words of Isaiah 53, is crushed and broken. As your own son is crushed, remember mercy to us. We receive mercy because Christ receives judgment. This is the good news, and it's counterintuitive. We all think, I have to obey, I have to be good enough. I have to be good enough that God would welcome me. Most every other religion and every other secular philosophy and worldview and and philosophy of life all runs this way. You be a good person and you will be rewarded. You work hard and you will have success. You do good and good will come to you. But the message of Christianity is you can't do good before a holy God of the universe. And you are not judged as a Christian on your performance, but on the performance of Jesus Christ. You have done bad, and good will come to you in Jesus Christ. You deserve judgment, and mercy has come to you in Jesus Christ. You deserve hell, and you have been reconciled to God Almighty and will live eternity in a new heavens and new earth with Jesus Christ in a glory that's indescribable. This is Christianity. God, in your wrath, remember mercy. So let's think of the storyline of the book of Habakkuk. It starts with, where are you, God? It moves to, you've answered my question, God, and now it really doesn't make sense. Life doesn't make sense. How are you going to use the Chaldeans? To God explaining his ways thoroughly So it moves to, this doesn't make sense, to I'm encountering your word and you're speaking to me and now I get it, to I'm silent before you, amazed at what you've done, to I'm standing in awe of your your work and I'm writing a song that we're all going to sing together. That's what he does. And I'm going to request in my song, revive this work, reveal this work, and remember your mercy. So there is a pathway that he starts over here at confusion and moves and ends up over here at awe and worship and writing 
worship song that's being recorded forever. That pathway, each step, the way he moved forward was by the word of God. And if you and I are going to move forward into what the Lord has for us, if we're going to get clear so that we see God as grand and we see his purposes as magnificent and we see his plan for our lives as something we're willing to give our all for, that is only going to come as the word of God increasingly convinces us of his glory, increasingly tells us our problems are very small compared to him. He's very great, and he is at work. Only by the word of God do you get there. That's what changes for Habakkuk, and that's why he's celebrating, and that's why he's praying this prayer for others to receive what he's received, and that's why it's recorded for our good. Let's believe it, let's trust him, and let's encounter his word together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.